Hey, as they're leaving, I do want to uh, thank those men and others who were out shoveling the snow from our parking lot. I know uh, some were here last night and some were here early this morning, and uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you, because it was, I came in yesterday afternoon and it was kind of deep out there, and it would have been a challenge, so we really appreciate those of you that did that. Thank you so much. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 16. Today we're going to look at that passage of Scripture that not only involves the great confession, but involves Jesus speaking about the church. He speaks in here of the church in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. I'm going to ask if your Bible is open there to to, uh, follow along as I read it. Verse 13 of Matthew 16 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that you have communicated to us in your word, that you have given us uh, information that we need, not just of who you are and what your son has done for us, but even of the church. And as we speak this morning in regard to her, your bride, your family, your body, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts I pray that your word would go deep and that, Lord, we would be a little bit different having looked into your word today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get started, I want to I just uh, show you a Barna research that just came out a year, well, almost a year ago, March of 2017. Uh, George Barna, if you don't know, is a big research uh, uh, person and now it's a it's a group it's a it's a company and they do research they they just do statistics and they find uh, especially stuff in regard to the church and and I was uh, looking in light of talking about the church today as part of our credo series and I came across these startling statistics about those who say they love Jesus but not the church maybe you've heard that. It is a term, and I, I've, I've heard it. Well, I love Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus, and I, and, I, and I want to be a follower of Him, but I do not like the church. There's so much problem going on in the church that I don't want to be a part of the church, and so I'm just going to be a loner. I love Jesus. I'll read the Word. I'll pray. And I might meet here and there with other Christians, but to be a part of a local church... I'm not interested. And and Barna did this research, and he says this. I'm just going to read it because he explains it best. He says, Those who self-identify as Christians 
Well, these, these are those who self-identify as Christian and who strongly agree that their religious faith is very important in their life, but are, in his terms, quote, de-churched. That is, they have attended church in the past, but haven't done so in the last six months or more. These individuals, he says, have a sincere faith. 89% of them have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important to their life today, but are notably absent from the church. So you see the statistics up there. He, he says, according to aggregate Barnett tracking data, this group makes up one-tenth of the population, and it is growing, up from 7% in 2004. Notice on this chart, the majority are women, 61%. Interesting. And four-fifths, or 80%, are between the ages of 33 and 70. They are the Gen Xers and the Boomers, interesting in love. It's not the Millennials. Yay, good job, Millennials. Right? Good job, Millennials. Except he does say, <laughs> Millennials are the least churched generation. They are also the least likely to either identify as Christian or say faith is very important to their life, explaining their underrepresented underrepresentation among this group. And then he talks about the elders, which is the last group over there. Elders are unrepresented for the opposite reason. They are the generation most likely to attend church regularly. He comes down in the end of this article, which you can find online, and he says this, These are people who still love Jesus, they still believe in Scripture, and most of the tenets of the Christian faith. But they have lost faith in the church. While many people in this group may be suffering from church wounds, we also know from past research that Christians who do not attend church say it's primarily not out of wounding, but because they can find God elsewhere or that church is not personally relevant to them. The critical message that churches need to offer this group is a reason, listen, a reason for churches to exist at all. What is it that the church can offer their faith that they can't get on their own? Churches need to be able to say to these people and to answer for themselves that there is a unique way you can find God only in church and that faith does not survive or thrive in solitude. Do you hear what he's saying? What we need to understand today is this. Church is vital and I mean incredibly important and life-giving to those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm a pastor, so I love the church, right? I mean, I know the church has weaknesses. I know the church is fallible. I mean, you don't have to ask me to give you... Well, I, I don't... I, I understand. Jack, you understand. If you've been in any kind of leadership in the church or been gotten involved in the church, you understand the church is not perfect because the church is made up of imperfect people, right? But that does not mean the church is not important to the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, I want us to understand how vital church is to the life of a true follower of Jesus. Warts and all. Warts and all. So today I want us to consider these, these, how important it is, and I, I want us to understand what the church is. Verse 16, Jesus says, or verse 18 rather, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the first time in the Gospels, in the, in the New Testament, that we hear the word church. 
It's used again in Matthew 18, but other than that, those are the only two times in the four Gospels that the word, the term church is used. Now, it's used in the letters, as Paul writes the letters, as Peter writes, as John writes, church is used in those letters, but in the Gospel, it's only used twice. Here is the first time, and again, two chapters later in Matthew 18. We need to ask ourselves, what is the church? And first of all, let me say, it is not a building. It's not a building. And i got to confess, I was just thinking about this. Often I will tell Mona, I'm going to go down to the church and, and go to my office and work on some things. How wrong is that? I don't know exactly what to say because we, we know what we mean by that when we say the church. But the church is not this building. We could be meeting in a school gym and we would still be church. Right? So it's not the building. But listen to this as well. Church is not just a morning service on Sundays. We call that church. Are you going to go to church on Sunday? That's what we say, right? And certainly, that's part of the church. But that's not the full definition of what church is. So what does that Greek word church mean? It's the Greek word ecclesia. And it literally means a called out group of people. It's seen in the Old Testament. The the Israelites were God's chosen people. They were His, in a sense, although this is a Greek word, it wasn't used in the Hebrew, but it was the idea of they were called out among other nations to be God's own people. When it's used in the New Testament, it is used most simply as this. It is the community of Christ followers. Is that as simple as we can get it? It's a community of Christ followers. It's not the building. It's not what we do here on Sunday morning. It is us who are born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And it's used in the Scriptures in two main ways. First of all, it's used in that of a universal church. That is, the group of born-again, spirit-indwelt believers in the Lord Jesus Christ since the day of Pentecost until the rapture. That means it's everyone since Acts chapter 2 who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's regardless of age, of race, of sex, of, of, of nationality, of, of uh, geography. It's everybody everywhere in this whole planet who has put their, self, their, their, their trust and faith in Jesus Christ and who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ until the Lord brings His church home. That's the universal church. But then it's also used in Scripture of the local church, which is a group, a group of born-again, spirit-indwelt believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who gather in a particular place and time. Cornerstone. Cornerstone is a local church. Jesus here is speaking of His universal church. He's, he's speaking of that which is about to come. It hasn't come at this point in, in the gospel, but he's preparing his apostles and he's telling them it's on its way. It's coming. It, 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 and I'm going to build it. And I'm going to use you guys. It's going to be something that you are going to get involved in. It's going to be something that is so important, so vital in what is to come. And he's going to share that with us. And again, I want us to see in this text Two extremely vital reasons why church is not an option for the follower of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at it in terms of credo. If you remember the word credo, it is, first of all, it's a set of beliefs. In the old days, we called it doctrine. But today, people don't like that word. So I'm not using that word. Even though it's the same thing, I'm not using that word. 
We're talking about a set of beliefs, but these set of beliefs are not just on paper, on black and white that we read about. These are a set of beliefs that guide the way we behave. So they're beliefs that lead to a certain behavior. And I think in the past, what, I've, what I grew up with was, was the problem is I heard all about the behavior. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. And here's this. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I never heard the belief behind it. Or sometimes we get caught up in the belief and we don't allow it to affect our behavior. What we are talking about is in credo is both beliefs that guide the way we behave. And so today, I want to give you two truths from this passage, but I want us to see how they guide the way we should behave. And so the first is simply this. The church is the personal possession of Christ. His personal possession. Now, in order to understand this, we have to go back up to 13 and and see these first few verses, because this understanding of the church starts with an understanding of who Jesus is. You see, in the context here, Jesus has taken his 12 guys, and they've gone to Caesarea Philippi, and they're probably at the base of Mount Hermon, which would have been snow-capped. Scholars believe that it was probably midsummer, and in that region, it would have been really hot. And so it's almost like Jesus is taking his, his apostles to this place for a retreat. They're going to get some, some coolness and, and be able to relax and rest for a while. But even more than that, Jesus wants to see if his guys have got it yet. And so he asks this question, hey guys, who are people saying I am? Who, who are they saying I am? And so, so they answer, well, some say, in verse, uh, uh, verse uh, where am I, 14, some say John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was this hellfire and brimstone preacher out in the wilderness who dressed funny and ate gross stuff, right? Locust and wild honey. He was this preacher. He was this hellfire preacher. Some say you're like him because of some of the things you're teaching. Some say you're like Elijah who was a miracle man. He, he did incredible miracles and, and spoke on behalf of, of God. And some say because of the miracles you're doing that you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets speaking to us on behalf of God. What's interesting is these things were being said of Jesus, but Jesus doesn't comment on those. He instead is more interested in the next question. And I think it was his whole point of asking the first question. Because he goes, but what do you say? Who do you say I am? i got to tell you something today. This is the most important question you and I could ever answer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And there are some people that will give all sorts of answers. He was a great, great teacher. He was a wonderful, wonderful leader. He was incredibly moral, and he began a religion. What a, what a great guy. Is that true? But there's much, much more, because Peter gives this, this answer, and it's on behalf of the rest of the apostles. In verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter gets it right. 
You are much, much more than a teacher, much more than a religious leader, much more than a founder of a so-called religion. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who has come to save. That's who you are. And beyond that, you are the Son of the living God. You are deity. You are God in human flesh. That's what he's saying in that statement. You are the Savior and you are Lord, is what he's saying. He makes this incredible statement. And Jesus answers and says, Listen, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This comes through supernatural understanding. And it is the Father who has revealed this after probably almost three years of ministry with Jesus. He gets it. He's starting to get it. And on behalf of the other uh, 11, he speaks, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, I pray that you can say that today, that Jesus is the Savior, that he is God in human flesh. I pray that you can say that. Can you? Because that's where it starts. See, we need to understand who Jesus is before we understand how important this truth is that's right up here on the board. Because it's out of this great confession, as we call it, that Jesus makes this statement. Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You are Peter, you are rock, you are Petra, and on this Petros I will build my church. I believe what Jesus is saying, and and man, man, I could go the rest of our time here and even more into why I believe this. Many people have said, who's the rock? What's the rock that Jesus is talking about? Without going to the extreme of, of, of how Catholicism has gone, I believe based on context, based on a, on a honest study of this text, he is talking about Peter. He's talking about Peter. I used to think what Jesus was meaning by the rock is the confession of Christ. But Jesus is using his name and tweaking it a little bit, talking about a bigger rock. But I believe what he is saying is, Peter, you as a representative of the other 11, I will build my church through you. And Ephesians 2, verse 20 says, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So I have some scripture to back that up. But there's a whole lot of discussion that we could get into that I, I, I'm not, it's not my purpose this morning. But I believe that's what Jesus is saying. But notice what he says, I will build my church. It's my church. Jesus says, I will build my church. He didn't say your church. He didn't say my father's church. He even says my church. Now elsewhere it's called the church of God. So I'm not saying that it's wrong to think that it's God's church. But here he says, it's my personal possession. Elsewhere in Scripture, if we look elsewhere in Acts 20.28, it's called, the church is called the flock of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2.19, right before the verse I talked about just a moment ago, it's called the household of God or the family, if you will, of God. It's His own family. And then if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12.27, it's the body of Christ. It's His own body. And then you look in Revelation and there is this marriage supper of the Lamb to the church who is called His bride. My, my personal 
possession. It is the personal possession of Jesus Christ, who's, who Peter just confessed as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Why is this important? Because it, it, it does us well to think about it's his personal possession. And we can ask the question, how much does he love the church? How, how much does he really love the church? Well, what's amazing is if you look at other scriptures, you realize that Christ loved the church so much that according to Ephesians 5 and 26, he gave himself up for her. That's actually verse 25, not 26, sorry. Ephesians 5.25, he gave himself up for her. Acts 20.28 says, which he, speaking of the church, which he obtained with his own blood. Listen, the church is the personal possession of Jesus Christ. And you need to understand something today. He loves his church so much that he died for her. And here's the behavior then. If he cherishes the church, then those who cherish him have to cherish his church. You're like, I'm unconvinced. Listen, I'm the first to admit, remember, that she is faulty. That she is flawed. That she's broken right now. That she isn't all that she's supposed to be. I was talking to Jack earlier uh, t- this morning, and, and, and the truth is right now, she may not be as pretty as one day she will be, but his point, I don't remember how you said it exactly, Jack, but it was something to the effect of, but if we could picture what the church is going to be like, that is so beautiful. It is so attractive. It is so wonderful. And what we need to understand is even now in her broken state, she's his church. And he loves her to death, literally. And if he loves her, then those who love him, who confess him as Lord and Savior, they they have to love her. I'm sorry, you have to love her. If you say you love Jesus, then you have to love his bride. You have to love his body. You have to love his flock. You have to love his family. Now, I imagine that that none of us would... would, uh, like this if somebody came up to us and said you know i like to spend time with you but i just don't want to be around your family or i relish talking to you on the phone but man i don't want to see you in person your body is gross or what if we said i love you but i can't stand your wife see that's what we're saying when we say i love jesus but I do not like the church. We are saying, I love you, but I don't love your body. I love you, but I don't love your bride. I love you, but I don't love your family. That's what we're saying. See, and it makes no sense. So those who cherish Jesus Christ have to cherish the church that He cherishes. Does that make sense? That's where our belief needs to turn into some behavior and an attitude there. But there's another reason in this passage based on another truth. And I want us to see it. Not only is the church the personal possession of Christ, but the church is the present plan of Christ. It is His plan. 
It's what he's put into motion right here and right now. Notice what he goes on to say to Peter. And again, this could be a long, lengthy discussion, so I'm going to give you my understanding of it. And if you want to discuss it further, I would love to do that. I've got pages and pages of notes, and I would be very happy to sit down with you and and help you understand why I say this. But, But in verse 19, Jesus now speaks to Peter, and he gives him two promises and two purposes that reveal to us that the church is the present plan of Christ. So notice what he says in verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound or shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be or shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, we're going, what? And again, we can talk more if you, if you need to have an understanding here. But I want to give you the first promise that is here. The first promise actually is back up in verse six, or 18. Jesus will build His church. The building of the church is His responsibility. He's going to build it. Now, who is saying this? Can we believe Him? Verse 16, He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Absolutely we can believe him. He's going to build his church. It's his responsibility. I had a pastor friend who would say this a lot. He goes, Christ is going to build his church. We have two responsibilities. Number one, to do what he's called us to do. And number two, to remove the obstacles from him building his church. That's what he said. And I love it. He said that quite a bit. And what I love as a pastor, and what it should be welcoming and inviting to us as leaders in this church, is that it's not up to us to build the church. It's not up to Jeff. I'm not here to build the church. I'm here to do what God has called me to do. I'm here to keep focusing on the purposes that he's called me to do, but I'm not here to build the church. That's Jesus' responsibility. So the promise is, he will build it. The second promise is the, guarantee, the success of his church is his guarantee. Notice what he says in verse 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Some translations say Hades. It is the idea of the area of the dead. So there's a, a sense in which what Jesus is saying, he's promising the success in that it will not die. It will not go into Hades. It will not uh, 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 die. And, and, and some might look at statistics in America and go, but yeah, but, but the church in America seems to be dying. Well, that's America. He will build his church not just in America. He will build his church around the world. And I can tell you, in China, in the face of persecution, his church is thriving And i got to be honest with you, as much as I would hate this to happen, I think the best thing that would happen in the American church is for us to experience persecution. Oh, Lord. Yeah, it's happening. It's happening. But anyway, nonetheless, what you need to understand, he promises success. It will not die until he takes his church out of here. It will not die. But also, there's an understanding here that he's saying the enemy will not be able to ultimately overpower the church. And in fact, if you realize what he's saying, the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. In other words, those are defensive positions. In other words, the picture is his church is not only going to be defensive and be able to stand the attacks of the enemy, but will be aggressive and go busting the gates of the enemy. Taking enemy territory. 
See, and I want to tell you, this is a promise, again, by the one who is Savior and Lord. The success of His church is, is a guarantee. Now, I know churches fold. Churches die. Church buildings close their doors, lock it up. The church that my dad went to in Dayton, Oregon, is now a restaurant. Kind of weird. We went there for dinner once with my dad, and he was remembering where he was when he got in trouble for this, that, and the other thing as a little boy. But now it's a restaurant. Churches are closing. Does that mean the success of his church is not happening? It does not mean that. Because some churches are thriving. And i got to be honest with you, I'm excited about what God is doing at Cornerstone. I don't know if you've heard much, but the elders have been getting together. The, the leadership, elders and deacons have been getting together once a month. We've been seeking the Lord for vision. We've been looking at goals, thanks to Kent, who's challenging us. Kent, you moved. There you are. You're right over there, usually. Anyway, Kent is challenging us in the area of goals and and. Listen, I know God is at work here, and I'm excited for what He's doing. And the success of His church is His guarantee, and we need to hang on to that. But you get to verse 19, and you see two purposes. One, Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, I was thinking about this. There's a couple keys that I'd like to get. I'd like to get the keys to a beautiful new Jaguar. Right? <laughs> I would really like that. That would be really cool. And, and, and i got to be honest with you, I'd love to get the keys to a beautiful multi-million dollar mansion, complete with swimming pool, maybe shooting range, maybe a golf green. You know, I'd love that. That would be so cool. But can you imagine having the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, far better than a jaguar, far better than a multi-million dollar mansion. And what do the keys do? They unlock the door. What Jesus is telling Peter is, I'm going to give you something that's going to unlock the door for people to the kingdom of heaven. Notice the, the shift. Jesus moves from talking about the church, and now he's talking about the, the kingdom of heaven. He's the king, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to give you authority to unlock the door for people to come in to the kingdom of heaven. And what is the key? Ultimately, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it that gets people into heaven? Good works? No! Given lots of money to a church? No, but we'll take it. But no. Right? Making sure that your good outweighs your bad? No, no. The gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so those that are part of the church, Peter as the founder of the church, on behalf of the others, he is ready to open up the kingdom of heaven. And you know what? As you follow through the book of Acts, you see that that gets passed down. The keys get passed down to where in Matthew 28, it's to you and me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Opening up the kingdom of heaven to everyone. One of our purposes as a church is to open up the kingdom of heaven. But what's this stuff about binding and loosing? Binding and loosening. Binding and loosening. It's weird. 
isn't it? Until you understand in the Old Testament times, what you realized is those binding and loosening was the idea of setting up a standard. And so in the Old Testament, you have this idea that that what was taught through the rabbis was that which would bind and loosen. It would would give a set of of way of living. Here's how you should live in light of the, the Old Testament commands. 613 commands in the Old Testament. And, and, and so a rabbi would bind and here's what you should do in order to fulfill them. Here's what you shouldn't do in order to fulfill them. Bind and loose. It's the idea of, of setting up a standard. And so what Jesus is talking about here is he's not forgotten Israel. Please hear me. I'm not saying he's done with Israel. He is not. Okay? We support Israel. We pray for Israel. We need to, they are still God's people. But now he's brought in this new group, the church. And he's going to give us now the keys, the responsibility to open up the kingdom of heaven. But he's also going to give us an understanding of standards, of of ways of living. See, we are called out ones. We are saints, which means set apart. Which therefore means we should look totally different than the world. You see? So we have, a, we have a standard. And if you look at Jesus' teaching, you realize His standards are completely upside down of the world's standards. He's the one that says, love your enemies. Right? If somebody demands the, the, uh, the shirt off your back, give them your cloak as well. He turns things upside down, and and there's much, much more, and for time's sake, I need to keep going. But listen, here's what we're understanding the purposes of the church by what Jesus says to Peter. It's opening up heaven to people through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, but it's holding up a standard, a way of living. Therefore, let us consider the truth, the behavior. Those who wish to participate in the purposes of Christ will participate in His church. Why? Because the church is His present plan. You want to be a part of what Christ is doing? It's in and through the church. Jesus gave this responsibility to Peter who passes it on to the church. Now listen, I'm not saying that there are people that can't can't do good stuff on their own. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is let us not forsake the gathering together as is the habit of some, but all the more, especially as we see the day approaching. And let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us be people who participate with Christ by participating in His church. She is His personal possession and she's His present plan. So here's what we've said. We've looked at these two truths leading to these two behaviors. Those who cherish Christ will cherish His church. Those who wish to participate in the purposes of Christ will participate in His church. i got to get caught up in my notes here. Now, again, some of you may have been in church all your life like I've been. And so you've heard these things. Oh, you got to go to church. You got to be a part of a church. You got to be at church. Church is important. And now you're going, but why? Why is that true? Why do I have to be at church, especially when it's flawed and, and broken and I get wounded and, and people are mean and people are judgmental and, and all this? Why do I have to be a part of a church? 
Because the church is Christ's personal possession. And it's His present plan. This is what we have. This is how He's working. This is how He's moving. He's going to use His people, His called out people, His community of, of people who gather together. And i got to tell you again, I'm excited about the potential for what God is doing and will do here. And I want you to be a part of it. I want you to be a part of it. She's not perfect. She has problems. But here's the final point. Church is not an option for those who confess Christ. Can you say, I love Jesus, but I despise His church? Can you say, I really want to follow Jesus and then not be a part of a church? Let me tweak that a little bit. Let me give you my two cents here. I believe there's two sides to this same problem. The first is, I think we have a generation that doesn't understand the truth behind the action. We haven't taught well. I was just talking with Jeff earlier, and Jeff was saying, we haven't taught them well. So it's our fault. Don't point your finger at them without realizing we haven't taught them well. And I know parents, when I was in youth ministry, I could not believe this. The first time I heard it, parents in youth ministry have said, you know what? As a punishment, my son or daughter is not going to youth group. And listen, I understand you need to punish your kids. I'm glad for that. I think the Scripture says we need to, we need to punish. We need to, we need to do that. But not going to youth group? I've had other parents when I was in youth ministry say, well, you know, I don't want to force them to go to church because then I don't want them rebelling. And I, I would think, you force them to go to school. You force them to go to the doctor. You, you force them in other things. Why is church? Why is church not that important? See, what I'm saying is it's not an option for those who truly think about it as followers of Jesus Christ. If it's His church, we ought to cherish her. If it's His present plan for sharing the gospel with people, we need to get involved. And here's what I submit to you. Instead of complaining and griping and grumbling about how imperfect the church is, and instead of walking away, maybe ask this, Lord, how would you use me to correct some of these flaws? We have a a whole bunch of people that are going, forget it, it's not meeting my needs I'm done. I, I got to quit, but listen. I wasn't alive then, but I heard the speech from John F. Kennedy, and I've always thought of it in terms of the church. When he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country, put that in terms of the church. Ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. The group of people that you're committed to in community. That's how our attitude needs to be changed. But there's another side real quick, and it's simply this. (laughs) We need to do better at reaching people. We need to be willing to let go, are you ready, of tradition, tradition, for the sake of being relevant to our culture. The problem is many, many churches are 20 years behind And our culture is going, why would I go there? 
See, we gotta, we gotta, anyway, enough said. I gotta, I gotta stop. But here's the, here's the bottom line. If you've confessed Christ, then you will love His church. If you've confessed Christ, and then you will want to be a part of what He's doing, and what He's doing is gonna be through His church. I want to tell you it's not an option for the true follower of Christ, for those who truly confess Jesus Christ. Now listen, next week, next week, Keenan and I are going to be up here and we're going to do a table talk because we want to talk more about this. Next week, we want to talk about the subject, dare I say it, of membership. I know right now that's a a pretty up-in-the-air kind of struggling topic. And, and for some people, they don't come back. We want to talk about that as well as other things as it relates to the church, His church. So come back next week, okay? Yeah? You'll be here? I'm taking visual notice. It's not an option. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Thanks. That's awesome. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much for for this idea. It was your idea that you would pull together a community of people who have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And, and you've made us your body, the body of Christ. You've, you've made us a family. You have made us, Lord, a, a flock. You have made us a bride that is readying herself for that wedding day when she becomes perfect before you. Glorious majestic in your eyes. Thank you, Father, for how you have worked to make this so through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us, your church. Thank you for your resurrection, proving that you indeed are Savior and Lord. And Lord, I want to pray for anybody in this place right now who have not come to that point where they have confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I lift them up to you, Lord. May you knock on their heart. And if he's knocking on your heart today, open up, let him in. Just simply say, I believe I'm a sinner. I admit it. But I believe, Jesus, you died for me and rose again. And I receive you into my life as my Savior. And I want to follow you as Lord. Father, for those of us that have done that, help us to understand then how vital the church is. And we pray this in Jesus' name.